0: Book of Matthew, chapter number 12, please. Matthew, chapter number 12. Matthew, chapter number 12. Appreciate your involvement in the service. I trust that the Lord has blessed your heart, spoken to me several times. Through the different facets of the service already, and I trust that you have not been left without some teaching, some dealing in your heart from the Lord. Before we start here this morning, let me just tell you the last two Sundays, if I call this one this Sunday and last Sunday, have been a struggle for me to get the, the message came. The messages have come very, very difficultly. Is that a right word? It's been very difficult to get the message. It's been a very hard two weeks. I say that to say this. Have you been praying for the services? I do not believe that I deserve any more of your prayers for my health or my family or my personal situations than anybody here. I think we all are on the same level on that. But if you came today without praying for the services, take it from the guy who's speaking, you're taking a lot for granted. You're taking a lot for granted. And I would ask that you would not do that. I would ask that you would bathe our services in prayer. I believe in preaching. I believe when it's a demonstration of the power of God, there is nothing like it on the planet. But if you got all all you get is what I've got, you shouldn't even have gotten dressed and come to church this morning. That's just the reality of the situation. And so if you came this morning not having talked to the Lord about the service and about the message, you're taking a lot for granted. And I would ask that you would not do that, Uh, not for my sake, but for the sake of the church. I trust that the Lord will use the message, but I ask that you would really bathe our services in prayer. I want more than just the wisdom of man uh, in this pulpit here. Matthew chapter number 12, verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held counsel against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him. He healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break. And a smoking flax shall he not quench. Till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. If you're outlining this this morning, I don't know what that's going to look like. It'll probably look like if you ever tried to do a diagram of a sentence... If you try to diagram one of the Apostle Paul's sentences, um, that's kind of what this outline will look like this morning. Um, It'll be a little weird. I'm not even going to try to explain that. We'll take for our our title this morning, uh, verse verse number 21. The title is, And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name, and it is our privilege to be here. Father, we are here with a copy of your word, and the value of that is beyond our comprehension. And we are here, and the Holy Spirit has been given to teach us. And if your spirit would take your word, and in your power, would teach our hearts, then amazing things could happen. We could be helped the way we need to be helped. Father, if you do not put that combination together, then we will have wasted our time, and it is not in your will for us to have wasted time, nor is it in your will for your children to go home hungry today. Feed each of us with the bread that we need. Do not let any heart slip through the cracks. Lord, meet every need without exception this morning. For we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, whose blood has purchased everything for us. In his name we ask these things, Father. Amen. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. This passage of scripture is just like it says, a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus from Isaiah chapter number 42. The prophecy is strange for two reasons in my thinking. One, in his name do the Gentiles trust, shall the Gentiles trust. People don't typically look to foreigners for help. People don't typically look to foreigners for help. Now, in the United States, it's a little more difficult to see because we've been called the melting pot, they used to use that term, I don't think they use that anymore, but when we were in school, they used to use that term. We were a melting pot of the world because we have a long history of people who have trouble, people who have been kicked out of their countries, people who have struggled. We all came here to get some freedom. And so we have all melted together, and so instead of insisting on our own nationalities, we all unify as Americans. Now, as Americans, we can be a little exclusive. We have a tendency to kind of hold ourselves as maybe a little bit more than normal. It's typical for people to do these things. It's typical for people to respect their own nationalities and their own national heritage more than another. I don't know if you're an old Hogan's Heroes fan, but if you're a Hogan's Heroes fan, you remember when... Uh, Igor, who is a Russian pilot, got, they weren't sure if he was really Russian or not. And so the the Hogan's heroes were trying to figure out if he was Russian or not, and so they told him that Alexander Graham Bell is the one that um, invented the telephone. And Igor, this Russian, fought them tooth and nail on that. He insisted that a Russian had (laughs) invented the telephone and basically everything else that had ever been put on the planet, a Russian had invented that. We understand that kind of thinking. We understand the the national pride. Uh, We typically hold our own nationalities to a little bit higher esteem in our own thinking. Now, the Jews had this in excess. Remember, they would not even deal with the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were only half-Jewish. With an exclusiveness like that, why would any non-Jew, a Gentile, put their trust in a Jewish person? When they're so exclusive that they won't have anything to do with even a half-Jew, why would any Gentile put their trust in a Jewish person? Especially when at that moment, what shape were the Jews in? They were under the boot of the Romans. Now, you might have thought, well, back in the day when King David and Solomon, back in the day, to be fulfilled and the Jews were expecting that prophecy to be fulfilled when the Messiah did come to power. But it would be a strange thing for a Gentile to put their trust in a Jewish person at that moment in history when the the Jews were under the heel of the Romans. So that prophecy is a little strange that it's being fulfilled at this moment. It's also a little strange that in his name will the Gentiles trust that men typically follow certain types of leaders. And the Lord did not fit that description. Men typically follow certain types of leaders, and the Lord did not fit that description. Think of the type of leaders that people follow. Down through history, think of the type of leaders. It's part of our national fabric to root for the underdog. Now, I think that's because we were the underdog. Thirteen little colonies fighting off the British Empire. And I think because we got our start, that we typically like to, part of our national character, to root for the underdog. The sports team that doesn't have a chance of winning or very little chance of winning, we root for them. Some mom and pop grocery store is trying to survive against the big box stores. Some little country in the world is trying to gain its independence. We like to root for the underdog. But the truth is, we don't want to be the underdog. There is a difference. We like to root for one, but we don't want to be one. We root for them, the underdog, but we want to be associated with the strong, with the successful, with the winners. This is very easy to prove. In our society, Coke and Pepsi are about equal and they're very both, both popular. And Coke and Pepsi t shirts and hats go off the shelves in droves. When was the last time you saw somebody wearing a Sam's Cola t shirt? (laughs) Would you buy one? (laughs) They're the underdog for sure. (laughs) But nobody wears those kind of t shirts. We want to be associated with winners. When that big chain store moves in across from the mom and pop grocery store, and you're rooting for that little— you guys know what a mom and pop grocery store is. <laughs> in our world, that's almost non-existent, isn't it? Where um, somebody just started a store, now almost everything is a national chain. But before, when we were kids, almost everything was mom and pops. There was a few chains like Kmart and Sears and J.C. Penney's, but. It was mostly just little stores that were not connected across the country. But when that big box store shows up, you're rooting for the little guy. But how many people will invest money in the stock of that little company? (laughs) Not a chance. We want winners. We want success. We root for them, but we don't want to be them. We want to be winners, we want our sports team to trounce the competition. We want our political position in the world to be one of unquestioning dominance. We wanna win and we wanna win big. We want to be our our company that is swallowing up all the other little companies. We wanna succeed and we pick our leaders based on that. Leaders who will lead that way. Think of the leaders and the heroes of the past that people have followed. Our history, the history of the world, is following men who dominate the scene and force their way to the top. You know, I think it's very funny that in Germany today, it is illegal to display the swastika. If you are selling a piece of military equipment from World War II, if, you're, if that's in public, you have got to put a sticker over any of the German symbols. The swastika cannot be displayed publicly. But there was a day when every person in that whole country was saying, Sieg Heil. It is the leader that they chose. We always are looking for a leader who's going to force their way through. We want the leaders who have a swagger or that John Wayne attitude. Those who will dominate the scene and who will not take no for an answer. We like the leaders like John Paul Jones. Remember John Paul Jones, if you studied your elementary school history? John Paul Jones in the Revolutionary War. There he's fighting the British, and they just blew his ship to pieces. And the British commander says, will you surrender? And he said, surrender? I haven't yet begun to fight. He went on to win. And we like that. We want guys who won't take no for an answer. We want someone who is going to force their way and make things happen. We want winners. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. That prophecy is strange because we don't typically trust people of a different nationality. And generally speaking, we're looking for a specific kind of leader that the Lord Jesus didn't portray himself as. From this passage of Scripture, we do find out a couple of things about the Lord. Look at verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them. One of the things we learn about the Lord Jesus from this passage of Scripture, in conflict, He often would simply walk away without argument or making use of His advantage. That is a long sentence, but think it through. In a conflict, He would often simply walk away without argument or making use of His advantage. In conflict, he simply would walk away without argument or making use of his advantage. This is very important, I think, that we we get this. Let's see if we can put the pieces of all the puzzle together that we know. Okay, the Jews here, if if you're paying attention, the Jews here were getting ready to figure out how they could destroy the Lord. They were having a, a meeting on how they could destroy the Lord. The Lord walks away doesn't say anything about it. He walks away. The crowd goes with him, and he heals a bunch of them. Now, think, think with me here. Put your Bible knowledge to work. How hard was it to get the Jewish people to get angry enough to react and to do something violent? How hard was it to, to do that? Not Very, okay? Several times we find them in the with the Lord Jesus picking up rocks to kill him with. Several times we find that. Several times we find them getting ready to kill the Lord. In the triumphant entry, he comes in and they're all crying, Hosanna. Not that long later, they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. It was not very hard to get the Jews stirred up. Later on, we find them getting angry enough when Stephen is preaching to kill him. We find the Apostle Paul stoned and left for dead uh, because he was preaching. We find them, the Apostle Paul uses this against them. Remember when he yells out about their religious beliefs, I'm getting called in question here on the resurrection, and now they're willing enough to fight each other. But it wasn't just the Lord Jesus that they were upset with, where they were reacting on. Remember, In uh, Mark chapter number 11, the Lord asked them, the the chief priests are trying to trip the Lord up, and the Lord asked them a question, the the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He asked them one question. The question he asks them is, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? That's a simple question. He asked them this one, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? You know those guys wouldn't answer it? You know why they wouldn't answer it? Because if they said it's from heaven, then he w- the Lord would have said, why didn't you believe it then if it came from heaven? If they said it was just something John made up, it's of men, what were they, why didn't they answer that way? The Bible says they feared the people. What does that mean? There's a lot of rocks in Israel, and they were willing to pick them up and throw them. That's what it meant. These people were very easy to get motivated to violence, especially at this time in their history. Do you understand this? We've got that one piece of the puzzle. Okay, now put that piece of the puzzle into this equation. In this story, whose side are they on? Well, when the Lord walked away, who went? All of the people, just a few it says, the multitude went with him. A great multitude followed him. So, he has a whole bunch of people who are easy to get motivated over their religious beliefs. And he has these, these Pharisees, these chief priests, or the, sorry, the Pharisees, and they are plotting against him. Do you see this explosive situation? All he has to do is say, "These guys are plotting to kill me. And what happens? The rocks start flying. He has them at a disadvantage. He has them to where if he wants to use his advantage, he can deal with his enemies right now and put them all in their place. What does he do? He simply walks away without argument and does not press his advantage or use it against them. This is not typical leadership. The second thing we can learn about the Lord is that he didn't work at promoting himself. He didn't work at promoting himself. This is so untypical of leadership today that it's almost hard to even understand for us. These days, we expect our political leaders, or all of our leaders actually, to take the credit for anything good that happens and place the blame for anything bad that happens on somebody else. That's what we expect. I think it's always funny. A politician will run for office and he will discuss how terrible the economy is all during the campaign. And when he gets put into office, the day after he's put into office, it's amazing how much better the economy is already. (laughs) Why? Because that's what we do. We take credit for things we didn't do, we take credit for anything we can take credit for, and we put the blame on anybody who uh, we can put the blame on. I don't watch sports very often, but I always think it's funny. When a guy's playing football, he makes a tackle. He sacks the quarterback, or he, he makes a good tackle, and he stands up, and what does he do? Look at me, everybody. I just did that. Now, what he doesn't do, do you ever notice what he does when he misses a tackle? He looks around like, where were you guys? <laughs> <laughs> who, ma- who messed that up? No, I, thought, I always thought it would be great if the guy stand up and say, I missed that one. <laughs> you don't see that very often. I blew that. That the guy just scored because I missed the play here. That was me. That was all me. My bad. We don't do that. Our, we expect our heroes, our leaders, to take every advantage, to, to promote themselves wherever possible. It's just not sports people who do this. I was at a church one time, and they were giving me a tour, and the lady who was giving us the tour, must have said this 35 times. Pastor did this. Pastor did this. Pastor put that door in. You now, around here, that's probably could be true. Okay. <laughs> but the pastor of this church never swung a hammer in his life. Okay. But the past, pastor painted the walls. Pastor did this. Pastor, she must have said it 35 times. Every single thing that happened in that church... The pastor got the credit for. Okay, now, this is what we kind of expect our leaders to do. To take credit for everything that's happening. To take, to push ourselves up. That's what we expect it, our leaders actually to do. This is not what the Lord Jesus did. Look at what verse number 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. The Lord Jesus was not looking to promote himself. He expressly tells them, don't tell anybody of the work that I have done. Two things that we can find out from this passage about the Lord. In conflict, he very often just simply walked away without fighting, without arguing, and without making use of his advantage. And he didn't work at promoting himself. You ought to file those things away. They are need to be implemented in life. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. Why did they do that? Why did they trust? Why did the Gentiles trust in the Lord? Verse number 18 Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Let me sum these verses up in two reasons. Two reasons why the Gentiles put their trust in the Lord. They trusted in him because he was trustworthy. They trusted in him because he was trustworthy. You know, a person doesn't go very, have to go very far in our day and age to find uh, a leader in any avenue of life or a hero who isn't very trustworthy. To find a politician who doesn't keep his word, you don't have to look very far. To find a boss who is totally dishonest is not very difficult to do. To find a public figure who ends up being involved in even something the world calls wicked, is not very difficult. It's not very difficult for us to find people who are not trustworthy. When I was working at that lumberyard when I was in Chicago, when I was in college, we had a manager there who was just a nice guy. I mean, if you wanted a day off, he'd close the store down to give you a day off. Very often, he would buy everybody pizza. I mean, who does that? You're thinking, boy, this is a really nice guy. Well, come to find out, he was bringing in a rental truck and filling it full of lumber and cabinets and everything. It, on, on the, he was having the employees load it for him. And stealing, I can't remember how many dollars worth of building materials, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth <laughs> he stole. Just he was a nice, you know, Pizza's cheap when you get the lumber for free. And so you think, like, wow, I mean, he was a nice guy. It's not very hard for us to find someone who is not trustworthy, who is in leadership position. But people trusted in Christ because he is trustworthy. Let's put it on the ground floor here. If I were to ask this morning, who here would stand and testify to the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ? If I were to ask that question this morning, we would not be out of here for lunch. Because Almost everybody here, anybody here who actually knows Jesus Christ would say, I have to stand up and testify that I have found the Lord and at all points trustworthy. He has always done exactly what he said he would do. I won't ask that question this morning because if I were to ask it, I'd have to be the first one and I'd take at least two hours to just express how trustworthy that Jesus Christ is. Everybody here Most people here would have that same testimony and say, he is a trustworthy person. He is a trustworthy Savior, and I have never found him to fail me once. And the Gentiles put their trust in him. Why? Because he is trustworthy. The second reason that they put the trust in the Lord is because they came to him because he's easy to approach. They came to him because he's easy to approach. Typically, leaders are not very approachable. I don't know why Hogan's Heroes is on my mind because I haven't watched it for quite some time, but one of my favorite lines in Hogan's Heroes was Schnitzer, the guy who brings the dogs, the guard dogs, pulls in and he says to Schultz, how's the war going? And Schultz says, I don't know, I haven't heard from the Fuhrer today. And Schnitzer says, well, that's good because anybody who hears from the Fuhrer has never heard from again. There's a lot of truth to that. It is. It's funny because there's truth in it, because leaders are very often not very approachable. My boss at Handy Andy, not the thief guy, but the other, the the main boss, he just had a look about you that if you looked at you like that, you just wanted to go sit in the corner and hide someplace. He just was not very approachable. It is very typical common for leaders to run roughshod over those who are under them, but not the Lord Jesus. He's not flamboyant or obnoxious. He's not loud or argumentative. He is gentle. He is easy to approach. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. Why? Because he's trustworthy and because he's easy to approach. No, don't get the wrong idea. Because we have expectations of our leaders, we expect them to act certain ways. We often suspect that when they don't act that way, it's because they're weak. For instance, when someone doesn't fight, we assume it's because they're afraid of getting beat up. If they walk away from an argument, we assume it's because they didn't have anything good, a good comeback to to, to fall back on. We figure if they didn't brag, they haven't done anything notable. Because we have such expectations, and that's so common in our leadership, that's what we assume. But the Lord Jesus was not a typical leader. You know, the Lord could have been that kind of leader. He could have been the hard, typical leader. He could have dominated and won. He could have fought and run roughshod. He could have taken advantage of every advantage that he had. I was sitting in my office thinking about this. What would life have been like if the Lord Jesus would have taken the domination that he had? if we would have been the kind of leader that we expect, what would your life look like? Well, it's real simple. We sided with the devil. We were part of the rebellion. We have added sin to this planet. We have refused the commandments that he has given. We have acted like he is not in charge. And had he been a typical leader, he could have run roughshod right over the top of you. He could have ground you to powder in nothing without even recognizing it. We must thank him for not being a typical leader. Because in our life, it would have been a disastrous thing. It would have meant death and destruction for us all. But let's put all of this together here. We've got 10 minutes, and if you haven't really paid attention to this part up to this point, kick into gear here. Because this is where the message really starts to get its traction. Look at verse number 20. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. What is a bruised reed? I like to work in the, in the yard in the springtime. I don't really like to mow the grass. but We've got a lot of mulch beds. I like to grow perennials and we've got hundreds and hundreds of perennials in our yard i don't know about you but sometimes i get a little rough when i'm pulling weeds and doing that kind of work and this the stalks of some of the plants like the irises and some of that the uh hostas are all they're pretty stout but what happens when you ding one of them what happens when you crease one Have you ever creased a flower stem? (laughs) You cannot give that to your wife after that. (laughs) Because you know if it's like that, it won't be long until it's like that. Once you know what you do when you're gardening and you uh, ding one of them like that? You take your little prunings here and just clip it right off. Why? Because it's done for. It's no good. Once the thing's been dinged, it's as good as dead. It's gonna fall over and wilt over and die. That's what a bruised reed is. It is that plant that's been dinged on the side and cannot stay, will not be able to stand. What is a smoking flax? It's a fire that's been dying out and it's all but dead. And all it would take was a quick pinch like that that would extinguish it forever. Let me ask you this. Do either of those describe you today? A bruised reed? Or a smoking flax? You know, our world esteems the strong and powerful. And it tries to put on a front that that's what it all is. You know, I'm an old man. Often the young think in those terms. The strong and powerful. But if you've got any age to you, you know that's not the way it is. If you've got any age to you, you know that you're just a bruised reed. You've been dinged on the side. You wanted to be strong. You tried to be strong, but you've been dinged on the side, and you've all but had it. Most people realize in this world that they're a bruised reed. Is that you today? If it is, can I say to you in his name? Shall the Gentiles trust? In the matter of salvation, are you a bruised reed today? Sure, in the past you have done your thing. You were working, trying to make yourself something. Working to approve yourself to God by your life. But have you realized yet that it's not working? You've messed this thing up. You're nothing more than a bruised reed, a stem that has been damaged and you cannot stand in the day of judgment. You know, if Jesus Christ were other than he is, you'd be done for. He'd just trim you off if he was other than he is. But a bruised reed he will not break. And this morning I would encourage you to come to that gentle Savior. He's not going to run roughshod over you. In fact, he has made a way for you to heaven not your strength that you stand in, but in his strength in the day of salvation. But if you're here today, you've already known the Lord as your Savior. Are you a bruised reed? I was talking with a guy a couple of weeks ago, and this is what he said. He had a bunch of difficulties in his life. And he said, I was always the strong one in the family. But these problems, in these problems, I'm just about to lose my mind. What is he? A bruised reed. Very often we think, "Ah, I can stand up in the tough times, bring it on. That's the kind of people we like to think we are when it comes right down to it. I'll tell you what I told him. Life has a way of bringing to bear more pressure than we can stand. I don't care how strong you are, life has a way of bringing more pressure than you can take. And the only true peace, the only true strength is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you a bruised reed today? Are the difficulties of your life got you weak in the knees, you're thinking, I don't think I can make it. I'm telling you right now, in his name, do the Gentiles trust. And that bruised reed that you are, he's not just going to snip you off. He is your strength. Would you not come to him today in your difficulties? Will you not find your strength in him? Let me apply this one last time. Are you here today as a smoking flax? What does your relationship with the Lord look like? Is your relationship with the Lord all but burned up? All but cold? It's been growing colder and colder and there's just the wee bit of smoke coming off of it now. It's so cold. Yeah, you are still coming to church. You still may be doing your ministries. Let me give you a little hint. A person who quits going to church Their problem started a long, long time ahead of that. Quitting church, quitting some of the services, quitting your ministry, that's way down the line. Those are external things. It's your relationship with the Lord that dies and that's what causes the rest of that to fall out. What is your relationship like with the Lord? Is it Just this little curl of smoke, hardly even a breath there. He will not quench that smoking flax. Would you not come back to him? He's not going to snuff you out. What he's going to do is fan that fire back to a full blaze. Would you not come back to him? In his name shall the Gentiles trust Would you not fulfill that prophecy this morning? In his name shall the Gentiles trust. Let's pray.